I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hmm? This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole. Now live. Tuesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. On the Para-X Radio Network. Welcome, you are listening to Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole with Andrea Vitimus and Jason Caldwell. And tonight we have a guest that needs no introduction. He's written more books than I can count on all kinds of topics from ceremonial magic uh, through Lovecraftian magic, through uh, demon magic, through his, his... I have several of his books on my shelves, including, you know, the Agrippa books and... Um, the book that we're going to talk about today, uh, which is is The Demonology of King James One. Our guest, of course, is Donald Tyson, who I said really doesn't need an introduction, and has been one of the most prominent occultists and writers uh, in the last 20 years. In addition to that, uh, why we wanted to talk a little bit about The Demonology of King James One is when we really looked at this book, we realized this we don't often have a show that talks about the importance of uh, one historical figure on the modern day belief system but i have to honestly say after reading this book uh even with the annotations and things i was horrified to realize how much of uh, modern fundamental christianity goes back to king james uh, and the King James Bible and this book on demonology. And without further ado, uh, to kind of phrase how uh, how much this still had an effect and had an I- impact for hundreds of years, welcome to the show, Donald. It's good to be here. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. And we have thunderstorms again in Ohio, so that means hopefully our bandwidth will stay stay up tonight. Now, I kind of was phrasing it a little, but I really was kind of, I've really heard Christians, fundamental Christians, say almost identical things to several of the things uh, that you raise in the King James book on demonology. His, his outlook is surprisingly modern when you uh, compare him with what uh, preachers are uh, saying about demons and possession uh, today. 
It's pretty much uh, the same thing. It's it's almost as if they have uh, King James's demonology at their elbow. Um, one of the modern things I find about it is uh, the tendency King James had to uh, just reduce all different kinds of spirits to um, demons. Uh, he, he really didn't uh, believe that there were elemental spirits or... Uh, various, uh, the incubus or succubus, uh, he didn't distinguish them from demons. Uh, according to James, they were all uh, minions of the devil, you know, and, and, and that, that's just it. You couldn't, have a, you, could, you couldn't have a good spirit, because all good spirits, except, uh, or all spirits except the angels, were evil spirits, and they were all working for uh, Satan. And I think that's a very modern uh, outlook. When, when I hear um, or read uh, the words of uh, various fundamentalist preachers, they, uh, they seem completely unwilling to uh, believe that any uh, spirit of any kind can be uh, beneficial to human beings. Uh, if, if it's not an angel, it has to be a demon in their view. And that's very much the view King James held. Oh, yes. Yes, sir. And being a paranormal investigator with a quite an affluent Christian background. I dealt with this for years. Even my work with Spirits of the Dead was labeled by ministers as being, hey, those are demons. The dearly departed go off to heaven or hell. There is no, There are no earthbound spirits. It's Satan's trick. So I really see how this oral tradition, if, if they don't have demonology at their elbow, the oral tradition has passed on throughout the church's, church's history. Yes, for certain. And uh, another big influence of uh, King James was his uh, his uh, law against uh, witchcraft, which, uh, which he passed almost immediately when he became uh, king of England. You know, he was he was uh, King James the sixth of Scotland, and when Queen Elizabeth the first died, he uh, moved from uh, Scotland to uh, London, and he took up. Uh, he took up the throne of England and became James the first, and uh, he immediately passed a law against witchcraft that was much stricter than the witchcraft law that existed under Queen Elizabeth the first. Whereas under Elizabeth, uh, uh, you might be sentenced to one year uh, in jail for uh, oh, uh, communing with uh, familiar spirits, for example. Under James, it was a death sentence to have anything to do with familiar spirits. And uh, and, that, and the, the the funny thing about that is that's uh, that kind of rhetoric you actually hear from third world countries as well, like now. And you know, there's many people on the very far religious right that say very similar things even now um, yes. about anyone thou shall not suffer which to to live, even though that translation. Um, can be argued back and forth whether it was poison or a witch, but King James certainly takes the idea that it is all witches of any sort. Yes, he, he makes a distinction in his book between the two kinds of magic. Uh, it's not so much his distinction, but it's the distinction that was prevalent in his period. Uh, one kind are the magicians, who are the high magicians, who... Uh, who uh, are interested in uh, gaining knowledge through magic and use uh, very complex uh, seals and uh, circles on the floor and that kind of thing. And the other uh, branch uh, it, it are the witches who are using uh, charms and uh, uh, stones and herbs uh, in order to work um, various um, 
healing and uh, malevolent uh, actions on individuals. And but, but but according to James, the two are really the same because they're both working for Satan. That was his way of uh, simplifying the whole field of uh, the paranormal and, and uh, the occult. Uh, it was all under Satan. So you re- he really didn't make a distinction between the uh, the high wizard and the uh, the witch who worked uh, low magic of uh, herbs and stones. Yeah, one of the, the things, uh, when I was reading it, um, I was kind of struck by the weakness of his argument that ceremonial, uh, what we consider high magic modern day times, would all of a sudden get up and make a pact with the devil. And I'm like, okay, well, why would you do that when you just said all these things that they conjured the demons and other things into circles to control them, and yet now they're going to just give their soul to Satan because it's easier and they know they're going to lose their soul. But he doesn't really make a convincing case for it. He kind of just says, well, they do it. Believe me. <laughs> well, he gets the prevailing view that existed uh, among academics in his time that uh, uh, wizards actually controlled demons. I mean, their their magic was so powerful that they were in command and they were controlling the demons, and therefore they were not in any danger of uh, going to hell or... Uh, you know, staining their uh, their souls because uh, the demons were their servants, whereas witches, uh, predominantly women, James says that for every one male witch there are 12 female witches. Um, that was the view in his day. Because they were predominantly women, his view was that they were weaker, just as Eve was weaker than Adam in, in accepting the apple from the serpent. Uh, all women are inherently weaker than men, and therefore women are more likely to give in to the devil and, uh, you know, become his servants than men are. Uh, that was uh, that was James's view. But uh, but uh, he he really dismissed the idea that wizards are superior to demons. He thought that. Uh, in the end of things, you know, wizards are going to come under the power of Satan just as uh, completely as witches do. Yeah, and he doesn't really explain, at least when I was reading the text, he doesn't explain how that is, except that it's, well, it's just easier for them to work with Satan, so they'll do that. Yes, that's right. He doesn't explain it very clearly. I'm the king, believe me. That that's what it came across as while while reading it. Actually, just believe me that they, they will fall to Satan because that's how it works. But it, it's clear he had a lot of he at least had some cursory knowledge of source materials because he's referring to, uh, you know, I don't think your general Christian pastor could refer to quite the level of details of uh, circles and triangles that he does without actually having looked at some of those books himself. I don't think there's any doubt that James studied uh, witchcraft and magic uh, as extensively as he could, but he was studying it as uh, as an opponent to it. And I should lay in a little background for listeners so that they'll know uh, why James was so fascinated with, uh, with magic and why he was so obsessed with it. Um, when he was a young man, he, uh, he was due to get married to a woman named Anne of... Uh, Anne of Denmark, uh, who was actually a young girl of 15 years old, and uh, 
she was supposed to come to Scotland, and there was a, a great storm on the uh, the North Atlantic, and she got driven back and couldn't make it to Scotland. So James uh, took ship and sailed uh, for Denmark, but there was another big storm, and James uh, was almost wrecked. So uh, the two of them were finally united, and when they tried to come back to Scotland, the two of them, there was a third storm and, uh, which, which impeded their progress. And James became absolutely convinced that the witches were out to uh, destroy him and his wife and to prevent their union. And so he started to study magic and witchcraft. I mean, he may have studied it before then, but uh, that was where he became obsessed with magic and witchcraft. And that was what led to the writing of demonology, uh, which is the culmination of all his studies on the subject. He uh, he started to uh, interest himself in the uh, the trials of witches in Scotland, and he, he would sit in on their uh, interrogations and listen to them uh, while they were being tortured. He would listen to their, uh, their uh, narratives. And he actually conducted uh, some of these uh, interrogations himself. Uh, he was he was so involved in the the whole uh, the whole witchcraft craze of the time. I should say that uh, during the early part of uh, James's reign, that was the very height of the witch craze in England. Uh, everyone was uh, screaming for stiffer laws against witches, and they were they were seeing witches behind every hedgerow and behind every barn. And so James wasn't alone in his fanaticism about witches. There was a real hysteria about witches uh, right around that time, which is around, oh, 1590. And it endured until about maybe 1620 and then started to taper off. But for those 20 or 30 years during the early part of uh, James's reign, he, uh, he, he was a part of uh, a larger uh, movement, a larger fanaticism against witches. But he uh, he, he led the he led the thing. He saw himself as the uh, the white knight of revelations, riding the white horse with uh, many crowns on his head, and he, he saw himself as essentially a, a holy crusader against witchcraft. Now that's, uh, what, that's why he wrote demonology. Yeah, I wanted to get into that as well. Now, obviously, James the first was responsible for commissioning the the first all English translation of the Bible. Right. Now in, in that trans in. Yeah. Now now in that translation is where we I believe we get the first coining of the actual term witch, which was a translation of, of poisoner. Now and, and thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Now does that follow suit with the witch craze? Does does the Bible become translated and then there's a witch craze or did it did the witch craze come before the translation? I uh, I think that the King James Bible the translators were trying to be as accurate as possible. I don't think it was uh, the translation was influenced uh, by the witch craze, but there's no doubt that well well the translation was taking place while they were creating the King James Bible that um, the witch craze was going on at the same time. That's what was happening. But but I don't think uh, I don't think it influenced the scholars who uh, translated the Bible directly because uh, they were really intent on doing the most accurate job they could do. So. Then your take would be that it wasn't the translation that came first which sparked the craze amongst the people. No, it certainly wasn't the uh, King James Bible that caused the witch uh, craze. 
Okay. It really, it really spread from Europe. I mean, uh, witches were uh, being um, burned uh, in Europe, and uh, it took a little while for it to get over to Scotland, but uh, so about 10 years after it uh, reached its uh, fanatical height in Europe, it made its way to Scotland, and from there uh, it, it kind of made its way into England. James kind of carried the craze with him when he uh, became... James the first of England when he moved from Scotland to uh, to England, and, and and as I said, you know it uh, it burned for uh, a decade or two after James took the English throne, and then it started to die out. When James was uh, a mature man, he started to question whether or not he was right uh, about all these witches. You know, he started to wonder if maybe. Uh, it wasn't uh, like accusations of witchcraft might be due to uh, errors and they might be due to um, hysterical children, you know, um, imagining things that weren't true. And uh, at the end of his reign, he, he wasn't quite as fanatical against witches as he had been at the beginning of his reign of, in England. But, you know, the damage was done by then. He'd managed to get uh, around 50, uh, 50 people, mostly women, uh, burned or uh, hung hanged in England. <laughs> they burn witches in Scotland, they hang them in England. Well, that's kind of interesting that you'd say that, because um, as we're going through, like, as I'm going through the book, there was a couple things that I had to reread to make sure he was, uh, you know, basically saying what he thought he was saying. Like, you know, basically one one part where he's saying the best defense against uh, <laughs> to cure the illnesses of witchcraft is to burn witches i mean or to kill witches and then if he fav he favored burning uh, if he had if he had had his way he would have burned the witches in england but uh, it happened that the existing law uh, that was there in england when he took the throne uh, prescribed hanging for witches so he was willing to go along with the English custom of hanging witches. <laughs> he thought it was good enough to hang witches, but if he had had his way, he would have burned them. So I, I kind of find that doubly kind of interesting that towards the end of his life, he, he kind of mellowed out, as it were, when he literally was actually, it seems like, suggesting a magical formula that the execution of the witch, witch was an offering to God, which would give you protection from witchcraft. Uh... Yes, he, he he did make that point. The idea was that, uh, uh, the idea at that time, and I suppose it was uh, an idea that developed uh, as a kind of um, defense mechanism of those involved in uh, prosecuting witches, but the idea was that the enemies of uh, the witches, the ones who prosecuted them the most severely, were enemies of Satan, and God would protect them. I mean... A judge who presided over the trial of a witch was supposed to be immune from the magic of the witch simply because he was acting as God's instrument against Satan. And because he was acting as God's instrument, God uh, kind of put an aura of protection around him that the witch could never penetrate. So the, the, so the consequence of this belief is that if you wanted to be safe from witchcraft, you had to... Uh, persecute witches with as much vigor as possible. The people who were the most uh, vehement against witches were the safest, you know, and the ones who were less, uh, were less uh, strict against witchcraft and against magic were more likely to fall prey to its uh, malefic influence. So you can see how, you can see how insidious that is. 
Oh, and, very. That's that's stacking the deck, saying if even if you take no stance and you just let people do what they want to do, you could be a victim. That's right. If if you're kind and you're generous and benevolent and you're willing to say this woman might not be a witch, maybe we should let her off, maybe we should give her the benefit of the doubt, then you were vulnerable to the evil of that witch. But if instead you say we we're, we're not going to give her a, a doubt, a benefit of a doubt, we're going to burn her anyway just to be on the safe side and let let the uh, as, as the Jesuits used to say, let God sort out his own. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. if, if, you, uh, if you did that, then you were safe from the uh, malicious uh, magic of the witch, because God would protect you, because you were one of his, uh, his knights fighting in his holy war against Satan. One of the, one of the things that I, I, I found at least somewhat re remarkable was... Um, in, the the story of of North Berwick witches and 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 the story all the stories with the uh, the Samson woman which I forgot her first name so sorry about that Agnes uh, Agnes Samson and it seemed like before they tortured her to the point that she broke she was actually mostly doing healing work she wasn't doing malicious magic at all no that's right uh, Agnes uh, Samson was. Uh, I, a genuine witch. I mean, it's impossible to be absolutely certain of this fact, but I'm personally convinced that she was an actual witch in the good sense. You know, she was a wise woman, and she uh, she was helping people. She was uh, healing them with uh, with various uh, potions and with uh, various magical charms and with uh, incantations, that kind of thing. And she uh, she would help the uh, the rural people. You know, the common people. And uh, she was probably a very wise woman, I mean, in, in a real sense. She, she, uh, she had conversations with James that uh, show that she was uh, an intelligent woman. Uh, and the trouble is, you know, she was, um, because she practiced magic, and it was pretty much impossible for her to deny that she practiced magic, she was uh, singled out as the leader of the, uh, the witches, which James thought were... Uh, intent on uh, killing him. James was convinced that the North Berwick witches uh, were, uh, had the primary purpose of them was to uh, kill him through magic. And that's why he, he, he went after them so uh, strongly. He thought that by, uh, you know, prosecuting them as strongly as he did in the courts, he would uh, protect himself. And it's just what we were talking about before, you know. The reason he was going after these witches uh, in Scotland, uh, they really weren't very far away from them. They were, only, they were supposed to be practicing their magic and gathering for their, uh, their Sabbath rituals about uh, 10 or 12 miles away from Edinburgh, where, where James had his, uh, had his seat. But the reason he went after this uh, group of uh, people who were supposed to be uh, a witch coven so vigorously was because he, he was convinced that by being vigorous against them, he was... He was protecting himself, and not only himself, but his wife. So he was looking after himself and his family. <laughs> so it's it's kind of um, it's sad because uh, many many people were tortured and uh, and many people were burned. Happily, no, they weren't burned alive. I, I should mention that uh, the practice was to uh, strangle the witch. Uh, at the stake just before she was uh, she or he was uh, set alight so uh, 
it wasn't quite as horrible as you might suppose. Uh, very few of them were burned alive. Uh, they were sometimes burned alive if the witch recanted her confession uh, just before the burning. Uh, strangling might be withheld. You know, the strangling was uh, an act of mercy, and uh, occasionally the witches were burned alive, but it was rare. Mostly they were uh, burned uh, after they were dead. So James being a product of both his religious background, his study of the scriptures, and the witch craze that came out of Scotland and moved into England with him, what, in your course of studies, what do you think really started this witch craze in Scotland in the first place? Hmm. Well, I think in part it was uh, due to the um, superstition of the people in Scotland being a little... Uh, a little greater than it was in England, and uh, but mostly I think it was because uh, the Scots were a little closer connected with the continent than the English, and, and the witch craze had uh, burst into a flame on the continent, and when it came over to the, uh, the British Isles, it went to Scotland first because of that connection, that uh, communication between France and uh, Scotland that existed at the time, and uh, and, and of course, when James came down to England to assume the English throne, he carried this—he uh, carried this um, craze, this witch craze, with him. It was already in England. It was—it was developing in England. But James, uh, you know, he—he he made it much, uh, much worse because of his fanaticism. So was Christianity the motivating factor, or do you think that people would have been superstitious about supernatural ability, even if it wasn't for Christianity being involved? Uh, that's a good question. Um, the the Protestants of the time were certainly um, fanatical against witches, but then at the at the same time, you know, if if you go into Italy and uh, France, the, the Catholics were fanatical against witches too. So I, I don't know that there's a great uh, deal of difference there. Uh, both the Catholics and Protestants were uh, were starting to see witches behind every bush, and they were uh, they were executing mostly. Uh, rural poor poor women uh, in wholesale lots at that time. One of the interesting things is that a lot of the kind of ideas uh, in the King James, uh, the demonology of King James, is that this actually, a lot of it is used to justify the Salem witch trials uh, in, in this part of the world, late, not too much later. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it, uh, the Salem witch trials were about the last gasp of the, uh, the witch craze that had swept across Europe and swept into Scotland and down into England, and finally it made its way across the Atlantic to uh, New England. And, and uh, the hanging of the witches at Salem was kind of the last, uh, last little sparkle of it before it died out. But uh, those witches were hanged under the same... Uh, witchcraft statute that uh, King James passed when he assumed the English throne. So um, he, you might say that he, uh, in an indirect way, that King James himself was responsible for the hanging of the, uh, the witches in Salem. And, and oftentimes it seemed like even in that incident, it was also uh, rural women, or, or as my reading of the history suggests, many, many midwives and herbal healers type of thing that were women who got the brunt of it. Mm -hmm. 
usually what happened is that uh, you'd have a small community and uh, a woman would be involved in uh, healing through uh, herbs and stones and and various charms. There were various folk charms, you know, you'd recite an incantation and you'd cut a potato or whatever and bury it in the moon and this kind of thing. Uh, all these different folk charms which uh, people believed in and, and because they believed in them they were effective. Uh, a woman would uh, be associated with these things and that made her vulnerable and she, if she uh, ever provoked the anger of her neighbors, her neighbors uh, had very little trouble getting uh, back at her. They could simply accuse her of witchcraft. And once that stain was put on uh, an individual in a small uh, rural village, it was impossible to wash out. I mean, once a woman was accused of being a witch, uh, I mean, she was a witch then. Uh, in the eyes of her neighbors, she was uh, accursed. And uh, even if she wasn't uh, brought before uh, a magistrate and... Uh, and you know, put on under the torture, uh, her life was essentially ended. I mean, it, it, you might re, you might liken it today to being accused of uh, pedophilia. I mean, it's very much the same thing. If you accuse someone of being a child molester, there's very little that that person can do to defend themselves. I mean, they can protest against it, but once the accusation is made, their life is pretty much ruined. You know? Yeah, they have to pretty much get up and move. Yeah. And... Well, it, Hopefully That's not. That's the way it was for witches, you know. Witches, yeah. once you were accused of being a witch, that was it. And, uh, of course, it's impossible to pr prove that uh, if your cow sickens and dies and you claim that uh, Mother Mary uh, living across the field was responsible for it, it's impossible for the person accused of witchcraft to prove that they didn't make the cow sicken and die. <laughs> right. Uh, Horrible. Really, what, what could they do? Well, and another parallel that I saw in your history of King James that paralleled the Salem trials was a case of a of a young girl, I believe, or may have been a young boy, but there was a child who was accusing people of enchanting the child to make the child misbehave. Children were often, uh, very often, were, were the re were, were accusing people of witchcraft, and and. Uh, one child now, he was, uh, I think it was a, a young girl who was uh, throwing fits and convulsions. And uh, James actually, uh, this is uh, later on in his reign when he developed some skepticism, he had her investigated and it turned out that uh, she had been trained to throw fits as a kind of an exhibition so that uh, a person who was uh, her guardian, I guess you'd say, uh, could, could collect money from people watching her uh, take fits. But what the child did was use these convulsions, these these uh, fraudulent convulsions that she had been trained to do for money. She used them as a way of accusing uh, various women of witchcraft, and she managed to get uh, people executed because of this before James actually found out what was going on and put a stop to it. And this was late in his reign when he'd, he'd found out that not everyone who accuses a woman of being a witch is telling the truth. You know, he finally... Uh, he finally realized that some of them were lying. So it took him uh, most of his reign to figure out that somebody yeah, might lie about that. <laughs> yeah, it, it took him a while. It took him, uh, I guess, 20 years or so uh, before he finally figured it out. Well, it's actually interesting that someone of his <laughs> level of paranoia 
would evolve in such a way that over time and maturity, they actually started to question their own motivation. Well, I suppose it's to his credit that he uh, he didn't uh, maintain the same view uh, throughout his entire life. He was able to uh, evolve, and he was able to learn from his mistakes. That's definitely to his credit, because, yeah, I think that a lot of us probably have examples that we've seen in modern life where people who have these, in a lot of cases, irrational views, they'll cling to them their entire lives, if not get worse over time. Yeah, exactly. That's that's true. It's uh, it's surprising that he was actually able to change his views uh, when he was so uh, convinced that he was uh, Christ's uh, right-hand uh, man in fighting witchcraft on Earth. And then, you know, he started to question that and thought, well, maybe, uh, maybe I'm mistaken. <laughs> of course, by then the damage had been done, but uh, still, you know, it's something anyway in his favor. Oh, we! I know that uh, there was only about 50 people that he actually killed, but he had actually imprisoned more than that as well. Oh, I mean, sure. And, and tortured more, too. And tortured more than just the 50. So it's, 50 sounds like a low number, but it was... I, I think he makes one comment in the tra uh, that, that you make that he basically was more or less that they would... A lot of the people would kill themselves through extraordinary means because... Uh, they couldn't use normal means to kill themselves because, well, they're in a prison shell, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it was a pretty bad position to be in. I mean, once you were accused of uh, witchcraft, your life was pretty much over in that particular village that you were living in. Um, and then if you were put to the torture, um, you could be maimed for life. I mean, the boot was the worst torture. Uh, that that uh, was uh, a device were, which fitted over your, your foot and your lower leg, and uh, wedges were driven into it that actually shattered the bones in your lower leg. And uh, the people who uh, suffered the boot, they were pretty much maimed for life. They, they, they never could walk normally again after that. Uh, and those were the lucky people. Those were the ones who weren't executed. You know, yeah, yeah. they escaped hanging. <laughs> yeah, there's a picture of that, a figure of the boot. Uh, in the demonology book, and you see, like, there's, uh, it's pretty horrifying. <laughs> it's, it, yeah. you know, it's, it's like, it is exactly that. Like, well, how many ways can we break the leg? How many ways, and in how many places can we break, break a person's leg? The people who had actually suffered torture, you know, in those days, there were a very large number of people who had suffered torture. They were all universal in uh, saying that the boot was the most painful thing that could be done to a human being. It was the most painful torture, uh, which I suppose is why it was used. It was it was the ultimate, uh, the ultimate torture that uh, could be used against a person. But I, I wanted to say something about um, the idea that uh, tens of thousands of witches were uh, were killed during the witch craze. Uh, that's pretty much an exaggeration. As you see in England, you know, James was responsible for the deaths of, you know, it's been, it's been calculated around 50 uh, people. And even across Europe, the numbers aren't quite as high as uh, many people believe. I mean, I've heard wildly uh, elevated numbers, uh, you know, half a million or a million people. And, uh, <coughs> they're, they're right out the window, you know. They're not even, not even in the realm of the real. 
but uh, it was, of course, it was a hor- it was a very horrifying time, and uh, many people did suffer, but uh, not quite as many as uh, some of the uh, some of the Wiccans and some of the New Age people would have you believe. Right. It's, it's it was bad, but it wasn't quite so much of a Holocaust like event. That's so, right, yeah. What do you think is going on there, Donald? Why do people keep trumping up those numbers? I think it's because uh, modern-day witches are just horrified at the very idea that uh, people could be just plucked out of their houses or taken off the street and, and locked in jail and tortured and kept awake for days at a time and uh, their clothes taken away from them so that they were naked and not given any food. All of these things were done to them, you know. And uh, I think people are so horrified at that uh, that idea that... Uh, they just magnified in their mind, you know, and they uh, they uh, kind of reflected back on themselves. They think that if they were in that position, how uh, how terrible it would be. Um, I think it's a natural tendency for people who are uh, emotionally involved to uh, to magnify the horror of, of such an event as the as the witch craze. And you know, modern witches—they're very much emotionally involved. They they. Um, feel the uh, torture and the death of these women 400 years ago uh, as though it were uh, part of their own family, you know? And do you think, uh, I mean, you kind of said that, that that's part of the identification or modern mythos of the uh, modern Wicca, even though it, historically, maybe there's not so much evidence so there. No, it's, it's, uh, it probably isn't... Uh, you know, it used to be uh, said that modern Wicca was a direct descendant of uh, the witchcraft of uh, medieval times, but uh, it really uh, started with uh, Alex uh, Sanders in, uh, in the 1950s, and it, uh, it it doesn't have any ancient beginnings. But on the other hand, you know, uh, you could say that modern witchcraft is um, a kind of a spiritual descendant of the... Uh, the witchcraft that was actually being practiced uh, during uh, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance by wise women and and cunning men of uh, rural districts who were uh, telling fortunes and who were healing with uh, spells and charms and that kind of thing. Well, sometimes I think that the uh, the hoodoo traditions are actually more akin to what traditional witchcraft would have been than than modern day Wicca is. Yeah, my own theory is that uh, uh, witchcraft uh, during uh, James's time was descended, I- insofar as it actually existed, it was descended from uh, European shamanism. And uh, the hoodoo tradition is really a shamanic tradition. Uh, if you go back far enough, all forms of magic uh, pretty much uh, have their roots in shamanism. And witchcraft, in my opinion, is a form of shamanism, and I, I would say hoodoo is a form of shamanism as well. So there's really quite a close connection between the two. Now, for the benefit, because I like where you're going with this, Donald, but for the benefit of the listeners, how would you define shamanism? Um, shamanism is kind of a combination of uh, religion and magic. Uh, the shaman is both a, a priest and a and a magician, and he's also a healer. Uh, the shaman makes uh, a pact, a kind of 
a union with spiritual beings, and through that union, the spiritual beings endow the shaman with uh, various uh, occult powers, which the shaman uses for the benefit of his tribe. Um, one of those powers is the ability to travel in the uh, the spirit land, uh, what you might call the uh, the astral uh, realm. And by going into the astral realm, the shaman can actually uh, rescue people that have passed over into death and bring them back into life. So someone who's uh, deathly ill and they're on death's doorstep, the shaman can go into a trance and follow that person's soul into the other world and bring them back and uh, rescue them from uh, death's doorstep. And the shaman is helped in this way by various uh, familiar spirits, which... Uh, uh, give the shaman uh, occult powers and also uh, give their own powers for the use of the shaman. And usually the shaman is married uh, to uh, one of these spirits. Uh, he has a spirit wife uh, who uh, essentially uh, protects and empowers the shaman because uh, the shaman then becomes part of the spirit's uh, bloodline, part of, the, part of the, the spirit's family line. By marrying into the spirit's uh, hierarchy, the shaman is able to acquire the powers of the uh, spirit. So uh, does that help? <laughs> definitely, yes. definitely, definitely. I mean, when you think about it, too, I, I would bet that uh, that's probably another reason why, um, although I, I, mean, I don't know that hoodoo practitioners would say they were shamanic, but they are definitely serving their tribe, what they th see as their mm -hmm. tribe, and and certainly when you read these accounts of the witch tales, it seems like they were serving, these rural uh, women were serving what they considered their tribe uh, yeah. of, of poor uh, rural folk and trying to make them better. If you look at the witch's familiar, uh, the witch's familiar is, uh, in my opinion, a kind of a descendant of the, uh, the shamanic uh, familiar spirit. And if you look at all these stories about witches having uh, sex with demons and with the devil, uh, they probably uh, have their origin in the shaman's uh, uh, marital union with a specific spiritual being. So I think there's a very strong connection there. So <clears throat> it would seem to me that with the propagation across Europe of Christianity, and you have these, these older local traditions that believed in forming strong relationships to the point of the, the priest or the shaman forming a marital pact with the spirit to gain power. This, this whole concept of having spirit allies that were not the God of the Bible, that were not angelic beings, but were local tribal spirits, it seems that Christianity needed to villainize these these acts, needed to villainize these people groups in order to spread its message that it truly was the true religion. Uh, sure, Christianity needed to um, essentially discredit uh, all other forms of religion and also magic as well in order to take over completely the the lives of uh, of Christians. But um, you know, in Christianity. Uh, especially in Catholicism, you have worship of the saints and uh, worship of the angels. I mean, it's not called worship, uh, but when you get right down to it, that's pretty much what's happening. Um, simple, simple Catholics uh, will say prayers to saints, and uh, essentially the saints fulfill the same role for 
Catholics that the uh, shamanic spirits fulfill for the shaman. So a shaman isn't, <laughs> wasn't really forced out by Christianity. Christianity absorbed shamanism just as it absorbed all the holy days of uh, various uh, pagan uh, lands that it came into. One of the things that um, kind of struck me, uh, at least in the, the demonology book, was that I, I certainly I know many Catholics themselves that that would have and the Catholic Church itself promotes the idea that people that miracles are possible on occasion. But it seems like um, in certain places. King James is actually disallowing the possibility of miracles, or, or like if things like stigmata occurred or things like that, that it would just be a sign of sin and the devil, even though that, that happened to Jesus. Yeah, I, I think it was James's view that miracles were uh, past, you know, largely past, and I, I think that's, uh, that's the modern view of uh, a lot of uh, Christianity as well, that miracles were something that happened way back when, but they don't happen anymore. And, uh, you know, Andrea and I were just having that conversation this past week where I was talking about some of my past Christian experiences, questioning past years and going, hey, look, I see in the Bible that the followers of Christ had these abilities. They had supernatural giftings. Where are our giftings? Why aren't we being taught this stuff today? Well, you know, that was the first century. The church doesn't need that anymore. That was just to propagate the first century church. But the interesting thing is there's nothing in the Bible or in Christian history that explains why the powers and miracles would, would leave. Mm -hmm. That's right. And uh, in my opinion, the miracles have never stopped. Uh, they're still going on as much as they did in the first century. It's just that uh, we're a little more cynical uh, nowadays, and we're demanding uh, verifiable scientific proof before we accept them. So... Uh, there are fewer people that believe in them. But, you know, if you go to Brazil uh, or various uh, Catholic countries in South America and Central America, uh, Santa Ria, which is kind of a fusion of uh, spiritualism and uh, Catholicism, uh, miracles happen every day for those people, you know, that uh, worship the saints and uh, the spirits. Well, as a voodoo priest, I, I'm pretty familiar with that, so... You know, there's an interesting reference in the Bible itself where Jesus went into a particular town and he couldn't do his, his marvelous works. He just couldn't. And when questioned about it, he said that he could not do good works there because they did not believe. It was like there was a, uh, a two-way street spiritually. To get the miracles to work, you had to believe they could work. If you did not have faith, not even Christ himself could perform them. Yeah, that's a good point. Because, uh, of course, uh, modern uh, Christians in the West, uh, faith is lacking in, uh, in most of us. Um, so maybe that's a reason why uh, there are fewer observed miracles. And I, I can see the mechanism that if, uh, if you don't have belief, your disbelief uh, becomes a kind of a barrier, a wall against the, uh, the working of, uh, of magic. And in my opinion, miracles is just another form of magic. It, it's called miracles because it's uh, Christian and it's religion. But when you get right down to it, a miracle is an act of magic. And it could be that uh, lack of belief is uh, is as powerful in blocking a miracle as faith is in uh, facilitating it. I would certainly agree with you, Donald. 
Uh, oh, from I've, my practical I've heard, experience, I would agree with that totally. I've heard Andrea go off about this topic, so I know he's got something to say. Well, it's just, uh, it's like anything else. I mean, uh, if you have the techniques down and you have the proper trance state and the so you can get past you and then you have the proper level of belief uh, miracles are really possible but you know when you have some people uh, who don't believe any magic is possible or uh, like the Randy challenge want to actually actively disbelieve it it's very tough to disprove that because their belief is so their belief is a different structure uh, on what is possible and although they wouldn't call themselves fanatical if you have somebody who's fanatically disbelieving any of this is possible it becomes that much more difficult to get any kind of result to happen well i agree with you completely uh, disbelief can be just as powerful on a magical level as belief and that's why uh, the best it's best to work magic in secret i mean secrecy is uh, not so much to conceal uh, anything of value from other people it's uh, it's to protect the working of uh, of a ritual from being uh, blocked by um uh either ridicule or by uh skepticism yeah i'd have to agree i i think that i've seen examples of that in my magical practices where hmm yeah i would have been better off just keeping my mouth shut not letting anyone know what i was up to if you tell somebody what you're going to do it's almost certain not to happen yeah, because I mean, like, like I usually tell people when I've I've personally been interviewed, you know, and uh, when I had recent uh, court cases, like what I actually do is pretty boring. I, I sit and meditate with herbs, and it isn't at all what people think at all. Like, and um, I, I could see that even when other people were talking about. Uh, about how they viewed what we were doing, it was very similar to as if King James were talking about what magicians would do uh, when he, he clearly could have access to a lot of the source materials, but didn't was taking a context very opposite to it and, and was trying to kind of uh, be oppositional um, as opposed to uh, fair-minded. Well, James, uh, I think James believed in uh, magic, but he was convinced that it was all satanic. So uh, he believed in it, but he was also terrified of it at the same time. He was uh, terrified of uh, it being directed against him, and uh, he was probably also terrified to experiment with it. So I, I imagine he, he studied in a, a kind of an academic way, but uh, but I would be very surprised if he'd uh, ever practiced it. Although. It's kind of a funny story. Uh, when he was on his deathbed, uh, his uh, the people who were taking care of him, his servants, conducted <laughs> a witchcraft ritual to uh, bring him back to health. They actually tried to uh, expel the disease from his body and transfer it into the body of a pig. <laughs> and, and here's James lying unconscious uh, on his deathbed. You can only imagine what he would have thought if he'd, he'd known that his servants were conducting a, a, a kind of a ritual of witchcraft to uh, bring him back to life. <laughs> the irony. The irony. Yeah, it, it's pretty thick. 
Yeah, it's just funny how people could be so prejudiced because you know if they were close to him, they had to have shared his his um, prejudices. But well, you know, when, you know someone, it, when someone's sick, they get desperate, and when people get desperate, uh, their actual beliefs come out. You know, and they obviously had more faith in magic than they had in the uh, Christian Church at that point. Certainly, it would have been as a part of their culture. Of course, Ooh. there's also the interesting thing of my my act of magic might be justified because I'll make it a part of my religion, but your magical act must be of Satan because it's not the same as my belief. Oh, of course. I mean, one man's god is another man's demon. Uh, all of the uh, pagan gods are regarded by... Uh, by James and by uh, people like him, by the demonologists of the Christian Church, they were regarded as demons. So you have beautiful, uh, <laughs> beautiful gods of uh, pagan uh, times, such as Isis or Aphrodite, and here's the uh, here's the Christian Church of the Renaissance looking upon them as as all uh, spawn of Satan. It's kind of ridiculous, really, that they had such a narrow-minded view. But the funny thing is. The same view exists today in fundamentalist churches right across America. And a lot of the same views about magic as well, that, uh, you know, if you listen to some of the preachers in Africa who have visited this country, well, they'll straight out say, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, and they, they actually carry it out if you look at some of the stories. That's right. Oh, it's horrifying. Which, uh, the burning of witches is not something that's just uh, historical, you know. It, it's not something, and hanging of witches is not something that just happened back in Salem times. Right. It's going on in Africa every day, right across Africa. You know, even as we speak, there are probably women being burned alive or hanged as witches in Africa right now. Oh, it's, it's horrible. It comes down to, in, until laws, and in some countries this is happening right now, laws are being passed to protect people from being hunted down and lynched or burned for practicing magic. And, you know, one of the uh, terrible ironies is that uh, a lot of the uh, revival of the fear of witchcraft in Africa is due to uh, missionaries uh, who are going uh, from Europe and from America to preach the gospel in Africa. And they've revived, they've actually enhanced the fear uh, and the hatred of uh, Africans against uh, those regarded as witches. So really, the missionary work in Africa has made it much more likely that Africans are going to get uh, murdered by their fellow tribesmen as witches. Wow. Well, there was a sad state of affairs. Yeah, that is that, a sad state of affairs, Jason. Well. Um, uh, the sad state of affairs that happened in Haiti after the earthquake where Haitian yeah, no. Christians went out and actively attacked voodoo assaults. Yeah, that, 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 that did happen as well, that they said, well, your heathen ways are why we had the earthquake and we're going to kill you now, essentially. So that did happen in Haiti to the, to the, uh, to the voodoo assaults in Haiti. So uh, it's kind of a, actually kind of sad thing, actually. Yeah, we're not talking about things that uh, are historic. We're talking about uh, things that are happening right now. It's just they're not happening where we are. <laughs> exactly. They're just not. And that's mainly, I think, because we have the rule of law. It's not because of the rhetoric, uh, if you really listen to what uh, some of the strongest religious right has to say. Uh, they're saying some of the same rhetoric. They just laws prevent this sort of thing from happening. Oh, sure. I'm completely <laughs> convinced that if... Uh, Many fundamentalist preachers would be quite happy to uh, 
burn me and you alive. <laughs> oh, I, I guarantee it. If there were not laws protecting us right now, the three of us would have to pick up and run for yeah, things that we have said in public. Yeah, yeah, and pretty that's much. Something, that's something to think about, you know, because uh, uh, climate of uh, a society can change very quickly. And who knows, 20 years from now, we might not even be held, able to have this conversation. You know, if if things go against uh, the New Age magic, uh, it could be that uh, there'd be a, a wave of fundamentalism go across the country, and maybe um, maybe that would be it for the revival of magic, at least for a while. Isn't that the truth? Well, we got about two minutes left, so I always, uh, you know, is there any events you have coming up? Uh, how can people? get a hold of you we put your website on our our website uh, it, it's donaldtyson.com but uh, it's uh, down at present my website's down but i'm hoping to have a new version of it up very shortly oh, <laughs> i've very been good. Uh, i took down my old website because it was an antique and uh, i've been distracted by writing fiction mainly i've been writing uh, various uh, stories uh, lovecraftian stories for uh, <coughs> anthologies and uh I haven't quite been able to get the new uh, website up, but it will be up there shortly. But people can go to the Llewellyn uh, website, uh, or they could go to the Amazon website and find my books there. And we'll have several several of your books up on our website, deeperdowntherabbithole.com. If you could stay on the line for a second, uh, we just got about a minute. i got to take us out. I want to thank the Illuminists uh, for the music, and I want to thank everyone listening. Uh, for coming and spending the Tuesday night with us. So thank you all, and thanks again to the Luminous for this fine, fine, fine exit music. <laughs>